Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. I have with great pleasure a special guest this evening, Harvey Kraft, author of The Buddha from Babylon. Harvey Kraft's book has received multiple acclaim and awards, including a double winner of the 11th Annual USA Best Books Award in 2014 for both history and religion, silver medal winner for religion, uh, Eastern and Western from Independent Publishers 2015 IFI Award, honorable mentions from the LA Book Festival Awards for two categories, spiritual and general nonfiction books, as well as an Amazon bestseller for two categories, history and of Buddhism. The Buddha from Babylon features the complete biography of Buddha's journey from prodigy to maturity and ultimate achievement. In this work, you will discover the long-lasting missing parts and the greatest story of this hero from Asia. This book is based on evidence that the 6th century BCE, the seer publisher Siddhartha Gautama had gone to Babylon where he became a popular leader. But after a mysterious assassination, as a Persian general seizes the throne and orchestrates a religious purge, Siddhartha must head back to the Indus where he finally achieves perfect enlightenment while achieving his comic vision, spiritual thriller and epic, an exploration of common roots of Eastern and Western religious beliefs, and a groundbreaking narrative of the Buddha's life and deep wisdom with an enlightened ending. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Harvey Kraft to the show. Welcome to the show, Harvey. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate your invitation to talk about... uh... The history, ancient, ancient history of the world, um, which uh, people usually don't have the opportunity to review uh, today uh, other than in some academic setting. But I didn't write this book for academics. I wrote it for people who are just interested in what really went on in the early days of civilization and why is it that we have a history that has this very advanced mythological literature so early in the development of human species. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, with reference, Buddhism has always been an an intrigue to me. I I, I just enjoy learning as much about it as I can. I wanted to ask you, what motivated you to actually pursue working on this project? Well, I tell you, I... uh... (laughs) 
I'm a child of the 60s, and uh, I would say I, I turned 18 in 1968, uh, which was a time of great upheaval. The Vietnam War was at, at its zenith, and we had assassinations, and I, and I went to college in, in New York where, you know, we had uh, fires. You know that term, uh, burn, baby, burn, that, you know, a yes. lot of people associate disco. Uh, that was actually sure. left on an archway in City College of New York when the cafeteria was burned down during uh, a particularly hot summer, uh, known in New York as the Long Hot Summer. So this was the environment in which I uh, I was introduced to uh, to Buddhism, uh, and at that time, you know, people were just trying a lot of different things, Eastern philosophies of various kinds. Uh, and so I would say that my approach to it was not like somebody was uh, asking me to change my religion. There was no such uh, pressure coming. It was more about uh, uh, be gravitating towards something that uh, Buddhists were saying. They were saying we could accomplish uh, world peace through individual happiness and for whatever reason, uh, given that environment, that made some sense to me. Uh, if everybody uh, found a way to transform themselves and be happy, I, it would certainly go a long way towards making for a more peaceful world. And it was in that environment that I began to learn uh, the Buddhist philosophy, and uh, I would say that that continued for me for many, many years. I went on from being... Uh, a student of Buddhism to really going beyond any kind of Buddhist organization or Buddhist temple or having a Buddhist teacher. I, I was just fascinated by the whole connection that uh, Buddhism had uh, in terms of history. Where, where did it really come from? Uh, because initially I, I was introduced to Buddhism that was developed in Japan, but we also know there's Buddhism in uh, China and India and Korea and other parts of Asia. And I was fascinated by the yeah. fact that most of that was based on legend rather than what sounded to be historical, and that the Buddha himself seemed to be, in, in one sense, an almost legendary figure, you know, like a super like a superpower, like somebody with superpowers, you know, that we have today, <laughs> you know, Marvel comic sure. type figure. Uh, and so I really wanted to know, was there such a person? And if there was such a person, what was he really like, as opposed to what the stories are that usually are part of whatever religion, you know, just like Jesus walked on water and Buddha walked on air and, uh, you know, various kinds of, symbolic talk. Now, of course, I later understood that these were not literal expressions, that these were basically uh, mythological language. And, it's, and as I went on, I learned the, how to read and um, interpret mythologi ancient mythological language and all of the symbology that's involved in that. So as I got deeper into it, I, I sort of found my own way and became a spiritual archaeologist, which basically means somebody who digs uh, through spiritual documentation and sees history 
from a different perspective than what we usually get, which is kind of a military authority perspective of history, where the victors write the history, to one in which uh, the perspective is what were the visionary people and the spiritual people, uh, how were they affecting history? And, and if we could look at it from their point of view, uh, would history be different? And that's the direction uh, that I was motivated to pursue. And that's a great point you make because I know um, anytime you look at history, you always think of it from being written from the eyes of the victors in any great epic in, in, in our existence. For example, World War II would have been written very differently had the Allies not won. Um, and, and looking at it from your perspective as a spiritual archaeologist, what did you find that was probably most shocking to you that you unearthed on your, on your own efforts uh, through writing this project about uh, just the roots of Buddhism versus what you knew beforehand that might have been taught to you through traditional uh, that's methods? A, yeah, that's a great question. And I had already started writing a good part of this book when uh, in, in my uh, contacts with various um, researchers all over the world, one contact in particular who uh, is in India, who is interpreting various um, archaeological artifacts that were being dug up uh, somewhere around the Indus Valley. And uh, it, it, it happened to be that some of these artifacts indicated that the family that Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, that his family was involved with the Persians. And there was a whole open history that, that appeared at that point through my relationship uh, with this researcher that pointed out the possibility that some of the early history that we know about the Buddha, which is basically uh, he was a prince and he was going to inherit the throne and then he rejected that and went into the forest and sat in meditation and after a while attained enlightenment and, and was a forest monk. Um, that there was a whole other possibility in terms of the early history of this person prior to becoming the Buddha. And that was that he was in some way related to events that happened during his lifetime in Babylon, which is uh, basically located uh, a thousand miles to the east, I'm, I'm sorry, to the uh, west of where um, India is, uh, which is today in the area of Iraq. And so I would say that's pretty shocking. And so when I first heard the possibility that the Buddha was in any way related to to uh, ba to Babylon. I was like, I I was in total uh, denial that this was even a possibility. Come on, that must be a joke. That's like telling me Jesus was born in Schenectady, New York. I mean, you know, it doesn't sure it doesn't compute because so much of what the history is would have to be questioned or or thrown out if any of that was even pos remotely possible. Nevertheless, uh, being a kind of a, maybe a provocateur nature that I have, I don't, I don't let uh, institutional um, ideas 
uh, stopped me from lo- at least looking into it. And the more I started looking into it, uh, a story uh, evolved that basically not only uh, showed uh, how uh, Buddhism came to be or why is it that the Buddha was so brilliant and considered to be maybe he was he was already perhaps the most brilliant, smartest, most educated man in the world before he attained this enlightenment that we know as an event for him. Okay. So it, (laughs) it wasn't, it wasn't quite the picture that has been sent down in history. Now, of course, what I'm saying would be something that uh, religious Buddhists would maybe even find offensive because it doesn't, fit uh, the story that has been handed down for generations. So then the question was, well, why would you not tell that story and tell some other story? And this is a very important point. And that is basically because the essence of Buddhism is dedicated to peace. And there was at least uh, pretty quickly after the passing of the Buddha, a movement within the Buddhist community that was recording the Buddhist documents to not address any conflicts which may be related to the Buddha, that it was important to show that the Buddha was totally not only at peace within himself, but that everything around him that he touched was peaceful. So consequently, if he was involved in anything remotely connected to the kind of upheaval that was going on in Babylon at that time, that would not compute. The second part of it was that by that particular time, the Persian Empire had grown to cover uh, Egypt to India and everything in between. It was the largest empire ever on the planet and probably to this day. People say Alexander the Great had the largest empire. He basically just conquered the Persian Empire, okay? (laughs) But it was the Persian Empire that that really was the very first. uh, There were other empires before them, like the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, but by all means, the Persian empires engulfed those empires and then some. So, uh, at that time, the Persian Empire uh, historically uh, was associated with uh, a prophet named Zoroaster. Okay, and Zoroaster uh, was promoting a different uh, religion's view that essentially pushed the Buddhists that were east of uh, India out of the Persian Empire. Okay, so the there was a, an ongoing conflict between Buddhism and the Zoroastrian religion, which Buddhists did not want to acknowledge. In other words, they were they'd rather move away deeper into India and move away from the Persians than to deal with conflict with the Persians. So this goes to the heart of the essence of pacifism uh, that the Buddha established is that in pursuit of peace, you, you can feel okay to walk away from conflict and walk away from war, all right? And 
when you do, then you can self-transform. You can become a peaceful, happy people. And the more we did that, we will be able to sustain such a movement of enlightenment that in time will establish world peace and overcome any of these power structures. Uh, but as we know, of course, these power structures are still there today. Um, so, so there is this kind of tension. And so it is one of the roles in my book to reveal the actual tension that was going on, what really happened, what, who was the Buddha uh, prior to becoming the enlightened one and beginning that movement. So really the first half of the book of uh, the Buddha from Babylon is actually about the history of spirituality and religion and its evolution from the inception of civilization up to the point of the Buddha's lifetime, which is 6th century BC. That's about 2,500 years. And Almost every religion in the world is involved in that history. Every idea you can imagine, from God to soul to uh, whether uh, you're going to heaven or uh, reincarnation or any idea that we have that is basic to almost any religion today comes from that period of time. So my goal was to show that Buddhism did not uh, become... Uh, a religion out of a vacuum, out of nothing, okay? Because most of the uh, viewpoints of people who think, well, Buddhism came from the Buddha sitting in meditation under a tree and suddenly having this enlightening moment where he understood all there was to understand uh, and that there is no other antecedent to that. But the fact is that the Buddha method of teaching was to embrace religions that came before him, some of these religions in India, some of them even include Judaism that was around in those particular days. All of the historical wow. antecedents are all part of the early inception of Buddhism, and that Buddhism itself is also tied to early Vedism in the Indus Valley. And so what he did was he first took them in, then he deconstructed these thoughts, and then he upgraded everything to a whole new way of looking at the universe. And he wasn't just talking about having people being nice to each other. He was, he was talking about a whole new uh, huge megastructure of existence that, that life itself had various principles and foundations and laws, and he was the first one to come up with this idea of the law of cause and effect, which later is uh, the acknowledged basic prime law of all of science. So if we look at his uh, expressions, which came out from his association as the leader of the Magi in Babylon, which I'll get to in a moment as to who the Magi are, um, came out of this whole movement uh, was uh, a, a new way of looking at human beings or human life as being something grander than anybody ever imagined. And by doing so, and by recognizing the incredible, uh, uh, amazing 
aspect that we even have intelligent life on this planet altogether uh, and what that means and where, why is that the case? Um, You know, he is perhaps the very first cosmologist and very first scientist coming out of a time in Babylon where mathematics is invented, where uh, the Zodiac is invented, where creativity is at an explosion. We're talking a time in Babylon where Babylon is like the, uh, the creative center of the planet at that particular point in time. It, it is then destroyed uh, and becomes a very, uh, how should we say, um, negatively uh, described place in terms of the Bible and, and other um, uh, documentation. But the real Lebanon, as opposed to the Lebanon of whores, which is a whole other thing of why that's the case, uh, is where we have uh, the precedent to the Buddha's development of his point of view. Uh, so uh, that's the case. The book itself covers the history. The first half is the history of spiritual development, and the second half is the arrival of the Buddha and what Buddhism is and the Buddhism that he developed over about a 42-year period of time. I want to ask you one thing. Just One of the things I'm thinking as you're describing this is, I, when you do a research project and you're looking at primary sources and you're gathering your data, it, it can be very right. laborious. And I'm curious, to trace this kind of history back that far, what type of primary sources were you able to uh, unearth? What, how did you go about looking at this information from your con- you know, within your context to formulate what you, you call the lost history? How did you find it? The information. Well, the first thing I did you know, for, for, like I, I tried to mention earlier, is I started to, to write this book as a Buddhist book. And in doing okay. so, my primary research was reading the, the primary sutras that have come down over the ages for thousands of years. And as a result, I gained a certain amount of expertise in that. Then... As I later started researching uh, ancient history, first of all, 98% of ancient history is destroyed in terms of primary, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not looking at, at um, necessarily uh, hardware archaeology and, being, and taking a look at uh, a piece of, cl- uh, of clay jar and from that deriving what the civilization was like at that point. I'm much more interested in documentation and interpretation of the document. And what I did was rather than narrowly frame my focus into a particular area, as most historians do, I looked at it like there was a massive movement. And so you can trace, especially through mythological language, stories that start out 5,000 years ago and then develop like you could see uh, in, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is our oldest ever literature that was, you know, basically chiseled into stone. But you could see some of those stories reappear in various ways, like there is a tree of life. There is a, a, a whole host of uh, issues regarding mortality, immortality, gods, and so on, that then uh, uh, become, um, uh, what do you call the the 
the foundation for religious stories that follow. Uh, so if you don't look at the entire scope of, um, of research across the board, you, you won't be able to connect the dots. Okay. So it was not just being able to look at some document and look at it that way. But then when I read uh, the uh, Buddhist sutras and I started seeing in them Babylonian clues, I was flabbergasted. And uh, others don't see the Babylonian clues because they don't have the knowledge of Babylonian clues uh, and the Buddhist sutras. And those that have the knowledge of Babylonia have not read the sutras, so they can't see that either. Okay, so I think it's more a function of having a, a huge scope of research and connecting those dots across this entire mountain of evidence than it is any one particular piece of research. But that said, there is a, uh, in Buddhist uh, uh, literature, uh, there is an increasingly sophisticated uh, hierarchy of revolutions, uh, of revelations, I meant. And when we get to the Lotus Sutra, uh, sutra uh, which is one of the sutras I cover, that in many ways has a pinnacle moment because, uh, for example, uh, at one point in the Lotus Sutra, uh, the Buddha is holding uh, an assembly with hundreds of thousands of people when, according to the sutra, a miles-high tower appears stationed, parked in the sky above. Okay? And it's like, wait a second, what is that? Are, are we talking literally what is going on? And so what uh, a proper interpretation of that is, is that this is no longer happening in the physical world that everyone, the Buddha and his entire audience, has now been transferred to a whole other dimensional existence where this is now taking place. <laughs> so, interesting. That's very so, interesting. So, yeah. uh, so in order to really comprehend what is going on, uh, you really have to say, well, look at this. We have a Babylonian ziggurat stationed like a spaceship in the middle of the sky in another dimension. <laughs> so why is this happening? That's one of the reasons people should read the book. That's towards the end of the book, but I, I, I'm just going to give you that teaser, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you the rest. Sure, sure. Let, let me ask you this. What did you find when you did your, your project that you found? In what did you determine were the personal qualities of the Buddha that weren't previously revealed in other, I guess, literary works or renditions that have been told throughout history that would be unique to reveal here today that your book contains about him? Uh, I think that one of the things I just ha uh, mentioned earlier was mm -hmm. that he, one of the things it says in the legends is that when he goes out to the forest and joins these mendicants and goes on a starvation diet. The reason for that is because there was a belief system then that a person had to reject 
completely reject their physical existence in order to purify their soul. The Buddha, when he uh, uh, practiced that, he not only did that, but he did it more so than any other one of these mendicants around him. And he almost died. He basically came to the realization that he failed to achieve uh, enlightenment in this way. And the next chapter in the Buddhist story is that he then, after that, accepts some food from a young woman, which in those days was like a sin, right? Because for those mendicants, it was a sin to even look upon, no less touch, no less accept food from a woman. So by saying so in the Buddhist um, uh, literature, they're basically saying that the Buddha uh, to become but Siddhartha then is basically rejecting the whole notion of achieving enlightenment by virtue of rejection of yourself and by virtue of uh, separating oneself from other people in the society. And so at that particular point, having that realization, he apparently is said to have gone sit under the, the tree where he then achieves his uh, ultimate enlightenment. What I'm saying is, between the moment of that acknowledged failure and him sitting under the tree and achieving enlightenment, 17 years go by. It's not five minutes. It's 17 years. That, that's a big piece and of it time is during that, that not seven accounted years. for. Yeah. Right. So he he is, uh, interestingly enough, we have a similar gap with Jesus. But but that follow, Jesus story follows 500 years later. And there are numerous connections between the the, uh, the New Testament and, and the uh, the story of Jesus and the story of the of the Buddha and various things. And but that's a whole other book. Right. The the point yeah. I'm trying to make is that there is a point where he rejects the uh, the process that he had been introduced to, and he then departs to to go learn more. And in those 17 years, not only does he achieve, he goes to Babylon because that's the seat of learning of Asia at that point. And he reaches uh, not only the level of being the head of the people who are in charge of the learning, uh, essentially, uh, which is uh, like partially scientific and partially spiritual. But uh, at that time, there is also a Persian takeover of Babylon. And uh, the, emperor, the Persian emperor who uh, leaves Lebanon goes to invade a Egypt. And then he's away for a long period of time. And so the people in Babylon who are in charge there spiritually decide to vacate the throne and put their leader uh, as the titular regent of Babylon, which is Siddhartha Gautama. But in the literature that we know from Babylon, the name is Gomata. Okay, it's just Gautama and Gomata, I say, is the same person. And Gomata okay. is there in power. Uh, what does he do? He frees people. He lowers the taxes. He does everything that a uh, you would expect someone 
uh, of Siddhartha Gautama's caliber to do. Uh, he begins he begins a a whole new uh, different approach in terms of freedom. And of course, this is a huge threat to the Persian Empire. The uh, the emperor then uh, that is there in Egypt is assassinated, and there is a coup uh, that takes place in Babylon. Uh, and where they say Gomata is then cornered and assassinated. However, the only witnesses to that are the witnesses of the people in charge of the coup. So basically, many historians have said that was a lie. So if it's a lie, it means Gomata escapes back to the east. And that's when we begin the Enlightenment period with the Buddha. And it all takes, and all the dates match, by the way. Wow. So you're basically indicating, if I'm correct, that from his experiences in Babylon, it helped to, I guess you could say, encourage his transformation later when he went back east to formulate yeah, his I mean, philosophy that developed into almost, what we know as Buddhism. Yeah, he is at that point, he knows, he knows everything there is to know about every religion that existed up to that point. He is totally, totally the most educated spiritual person on the planet at that point not only that but he has developed uh prior to that of course he developed that mendicant uh, capability to have transcendent experience but then also in babylon uh there is this channeling uh uh capability that he adds to his abilities okay so by the time you meet the enlightened buddha you have a person who has now been able to open up a visionary uh, world. And not only that, what is distinctive about the Buddha once he attains enlightenment is his ability to share his visions with the disciples that are following him. Imagine that in those days, you, you, would never, you never could think that a whole bunch of people can go into a movie theater and watch a movie together. But essentially, that's what, the, well, that's what they see. Shared vision is the Buddha being able to create a vision that other people who are also in meditation with him are able to share and see the same thing. Wow. That's interesting. That, yeah, that's, that's some higher that's level. That's pretty advanced. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That, that's advanced higher consciousness capabilities that uh, hopefully we will be able to rediscover because – what the Buddha is basically, his message is saying is that the capacity of human beings, okay, can be extended much, much further than we have been able to in our externally oriented um, world. And, and we are right now, as we, as we are living now in a highly technological era, which is only going to get to be more so, this puts tremendous evolutionary pressure on the human species to evolve. And evolution in this case, uh, physical evolution takes way too long. But evolution of consciousness can be done, as the Buddha proves it, within a single lifetime. So in other words, right now we're going through, our, our entire world is going through an awakening an awakening uh, that means we're becoming more aware, we're becoming more discerning, we are being uh, challenged uh, to survive by uh, extending our ability 
to develop our higher consciousness. So Buddhism in this particular uh, framework is not about uh, converting somebody to a particular religion. Buddhism is about enlightening, and you could you could uh, you could do so whether you're an atheist or, or or any religion or whatever, because this is something that's endowed within the human being themselves. That we have always had this omnipresent endowment capability of enlightenment that is essentially uh, a seed in the core of our being. And this can only be understood once you are enlightened as to what is the full story of existence. But that's what the Buddha was talking about. And much of that is is revealed uh, in this book. I find that interesting. Think of our modern era when you think of those who say our brain only has a certain amount of its potential that's been reached to date and that there's so much more that's left on you know, unearthed at this point. As you're explaining that, I think yeah, of where we are now in our in our modern era, you know, our modern day. And the understanding of the brain itself. Yeah, even the way and, even the way we define ourselves now because of science being an empirical way of looking at things it's become popular to refer to our mind as the brain. But the brain uh, is a physical property. Uh, What is understood in ancient time as consciousness, science does still has no clue as to what exactly that is. But in terms of the ancient spiritual view, this is an, a boundless capability. In other words, that, that there is a higher consciousness that is connected to the brain as if the brain was an airport and a consciousness was the planes coming in and out. And where the planes go to can be far away from the airport or to go to another airport in another mind, in another brain. So this interactive capability is far beyond the brain while the brain itself is maybe underused that's only because either there are things going on that we are not conscious of or aware of because we haven't trained ourselves to do so yet or the light hasn't just gone on yet for ourselves as individuals or collectively because we haven't pushed the evolution quite there yet but again the buddha represents the moment in history when we can look back to and say yes that's possible that's interesting. I, I think what you've explained to so far during this episode is phenomenal because it really is very thought-provoking. And it fits what I would say from my vantage point as I'll call myself a lay person when it comes to the actual studies that you've done to date. Uh, probably a good part of our audience is the same way. But I like the way you're breaking it down in terms of explaining how the ancients viewed consciousness. Uh, one of my follow-up questions to you is, I know you use the term cosmic Buddhism. Can you explain that a little further for us? Right. Because that's something that I think would be important to explain at this point. Right. So, so the, the, say the, the, uh, the sutras are literature that is Buddhist literature that been, that basically records uh, the views of the Buddha. Uh, They're, they're partly, uh, present, they're partly taking place on a visionary level or a mythological level, right? 
So that's why it's very difficult uh, even for Buddhists to try to understand it. What is basically going on in the major Buddha's uh, uh, literature, there are, there are some literature where uh, the Buddha is being asked questions about pretty much, you know, philosophical issues or, or issues of how we should conduct ourselves. But there are basically, I would say, the three most major sutras, which are um, called the Flower Garland Sutra, the Great Wisdom Sutra, and the Lotus Sutra. They all take place on a cosmic stage. And by, okay. by that, I mean uh, the Flower Garland Sutra uh, talks about how uh, the universe came to be. And that, uh, without telling you what that is, but, but there is a universe creation where the stars come about and the stars are themselves Buddhas and, and so on. All of that is in the book. Uh, and so we have essentially a Big Bang creation story within Buddhism. That's 2,500 years old. Then sure. we also have a, a whole litany of stories that take place in regards to what you might call uh, in other religions angels, but in Buddhism are called celestial bodhisattvas. They are very advanced spiritual beings with what's called reward bodies, so they're not totally physical bodies, and they are assisting other Buddhas throughout the universe, and there are uh, innumerable number of Buddhas all, all over in every direction of the universe. Okay? That's cosmic Buddhism. Okay. And then we have the Lotus Sutra, where we have uh, essentially a gathering that takes place on a whole other level of all the Buddhas, and all of that is in order to basically reveal what would be called in some religions God, what is called in Buddhism uh, the ultimate Buddha, or the, on, the enlightened omnipresence of life. This is all a very spir spiritual uh, revelation, but one that you could definitely say is cosmic Buddhism. So that's what I'm referring to. And that's all in the literature. Okay, that's all in the okay. ancient literature. No one's, no, no, none of that is, uh, came later. This is all part of the original works of the Buddha. I have a question as you're describing that. It, it makes me think of uh, aliens and, and other life forms. Is that something that you, you, you've come across when you saw, when you described the other Buddha? And um, is that, is that, how, would, how would that be accounted for in, in, your, in your particular? Well, I think you need to, yes, I, I, obviously I'm well aware as I'm saying it that many people, today are enamored with the alien stories that we have today. And the way we tell the stories today tends to be uh, aliens as advanced technological beings. And the reason for that is because we've become advanced technological beings. Okay. And the way these stories were told in ancient times were as advanced spiritual beings because they were advanced <laughs> spiritual beings. <laughs> so okay. how we how we paint the picture uh is largely a reflection of ourselves. So the the question really is 
uh, if you want to talk about aliens, is do we really as yet, as, as far as we know so far about the universe, we are so much more advanced every single week in our present uh, day. We, we learn more about the universe than the ancient sages uh, would have been able to do in several lifetimes, right, in terms of seeing Correct. it. Okay, but the first thing to accept is that within the human being is the ability to see a visionary eye that is boundless. In other words, there is a telescope in your mind that if you turn that telescope on, you can actually see and communicate with beings uh, across uh, innumerable distances across space, ones that we could we can never physically reach them. Not to mention that we just found out that much of space right now is not just cold space, but has uh, hot hydrogen winds that are about a million degrees in heat. So not a good place to go running around with a spaceship if you don't know that there's more of that kind of molecular action in space than than the galaxies combined, right? Three times as much as galaxies in terms of atomic uh, particles. So I'm just trying to give you the understanding that much of what we're doing from a scientific standpoint is also sci-fi and that I love science fiction. Uh, I think uh, it opens us up to visionary ideas that we should explore. And I personally uh, am engaged in technology and want to create stories that hopefully in the future we'll be able to use virtual reality to, to help uh, people open up uh, their co- their higher consciousness to new possibilities. I am very optimistic about the role of technology uh, used for the sake of uh, advancing human evolution. But that said, that the physical aspect of alien behavior is just one thing, and in many cases is a reflection in our Uh, our stories today of the fears that we have of being invaded or being abducted as opposed to the kind of spiritually advanced beings that uh, were talked about in the ancient by the ancient sages. It makes a lot of sense. I can understand that, especially looking at it from the vantage point that thousands of years ago, spiritual development was something that was more of a focus and technological development was, at the time the technology wasn't there. And I also can see from what you're describing at some point where spirituality differs from our technological understandings of things. And I I like the fact that you can look at both sides of that, but then also approach it and, and, and differentiate it as well. um, From my viewpoint, the spiritual stuff that you've described in our episode today from from what I'm, from what I'm at least hearing you explain, kind of shines a bright light on how cosmic Buddhism could pl- interplay in the creation story of the universe. I, I do like the fact that you're you're explaining that in, in the way you are uh, doing so. Let me ask you a, a follow up question in terms of this stuff. What would you say from your experience working with this? 
if anything that you would leave our listener with, what would be the most profound thing you would say you learned from your project? <laughs> well, I personally uh, worked on my whole life on this. Uh, there is there is no way that it wouldn't profoundly change me. Uh, I would say that one of the greatest revelations for me is that there is always, always so much more to uh, learn. Uh, and no matter how much you know, <laughs> it, the Buddha never said, oh, I know everything, okay? Other people said the Buddha knew everything. But the point of the matter is that he was always pushing the envelope, and his main thrust of what he was doing was to take others along the journey with him. The classic Buddhist uh, story of the Buddha when he attains enlightenment is that a demonic figure comes to him and say, hey, why don't I tell you what? Look, you want to be enlightened? I'm going to open up the door to heaven to you. You can come in, you know, and come into nirvana. You'll be enlightened. You get everything you want. And the response of the Buddha to that demon at that time, we can call him a demon, but the response was, I'm not intending to come in to nirvana or enlightenment until I bring the whole world with me. And this, uh, this figure, this demonic figure, then runs away in horror. That's the story. Okay, but the takeaway from that is that this is not about me. This is not about any one individual, that we are all connected in terms of our uh, destiny and fate, and that even one who achieves more learning than perhaps others, then your role at that particular point is to share and to help others break through, and your work is never done. And the Buddha said at one point in the sutra that he has been born so many countless times in order to do this work of teaching others how to uh, pursue enlightenment, but that so far... He's only lived one-third of the amount of lifetimes he would still need to live before the job is done. So, that, again, that just goes to show the attitude that uh, we, we each uh, should pursue our own self-transformation. And as we do, we, have a, uh, we are nothing more than just selfish if we stop there. That's interesting. That's interesting. Looking at it in terms of what the Buddha did in his own development of his abilities, was there anything you found in relation to, I know obviously a spiritual enlightenment, did you see uh, references to what he could do psychically? Or were there anything, any mention of special abilities he developed through his experiences over in Babylon before he went back east? Uh, it's a it's a good question. I don't think that I can really properly describe that part here and now. I think that you can pick that up as you read okay. the book and you see the evolution of what he's doing. But there is no 
uh, how should we say, there is what you might call the development of higher consciousness talents as opposed to having superpowers, okay? In other words, okay. everything, everything that he is capable of doing is actually as an example that human beings are capable of doing. It's not like he is gifted with some extra something that we cannot ever aspire to. But that said, he is always saying, if you want to become uh, like me in terms of what I'm capable of doing, you're going to have to work really, really hard to get there. Because that's what I did. So he is basically espousing tenacity, a never-give-up attitude, and always moving forward and uh, with courage to overcome whatever obstacle challenges you. And I could tell you a little story in one of the sutras is in one of his past lifetimes, he comes across essentially a monster. And the monster, uh, you know, has some secret revelation that he wants to know about and so the monster said i i'll tell you if you will allow me to eat you after i tell you and he is willing to sacrifice his life in order uh to hear this wisdom of course by doing so he is liberated from uh this notion that uh, my physical presence is more important than uh, and than the enlightenment, uh, and so by choosing enlightenment over his physical presence, he gets rewarded with both. Uh, again, this is a this is a story, right? But it has a meaning. The meaning is to basically pursue with passion this notion of enlightenment. That it's not some passive thing as many people espouse that if you just sit there and you detach yourself and you're, you know, and you're away from the world and you're detached from the world and you can have a dispassion towards everything and then you're pure. That is not what the Buddha was espousing. That idea existed when the Buddha reached uh, the, the forest. The, the people who he first encountered had that point of view and he accepted that. But then he went on from there, as I said, he deconstructed that and then went forward. So sometimes there's a lot of confusion because uh, he taught in stages. And so people take a piece from any particular stage of his teachings and say, this is it. So what I'm trying to convey is that the lesson here is not just a lesson about Buddhism, but the lesson is in your life, in your own daily life, that... uh, You have a certain amount of time to live and use it to the utmost and challenge yourself and don't let anybody or anything stop you from learning things that will help you transform your mind to become wiser and more discerning. I love the way you just tied that in for our average listener, um, how it could be important to them personally and what kind of message, you know, we could take from the Buddha from Babylon. Uh, Mr. Kraft, I want to ask you for the last few minutes we have left. If you could tell us a little about what you're up to now beyond this, uh, this work that you've done, 
Um, first off, can you share your website with our audience? So if they want to look at your information, they can review that. And if they want to follow up with you and contact you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Okay, well, you can uh, go to my website is Buddha, B-U-D-D-H-A, from Babylon, uh, B-A-B-Y-L-O-N dot com. There is a contact form on that website, so you can reach me through that, and I will try to answer people's questions if that's what you want to do. You can get the book itself on Amazon. It's available in paperback. It's over 500 pages. It's not quick summer reading. Uh, you can... You, uh, you can download a digital copy. Uh, so great. that's that. Uh, what am I doing now? Well, uh, I've been working on uh, a, a book called The Waker, which is a science fiction uh, story. And in addition to that, I'm involved in the virtual uh, reality uh, area and uh, with the intention of creating the some of the various aspects of the Buddha from Babylon and importantly the history of the world from a spiritual archaeology perspective uh, so that that will probably take the rest of my life since I spent uh, 40 years on doing what I've done up to now I'm also on LinkedIn wow. where I basically every day I post what I call um, wisdom verses they're like uh, short uh, poetic uh, pieces. I've been doing that now for about uh, 750 days or so. So there is a ton of stuff there. And to get that, uh, you can go to my profile, Harvey Craft, uh, at Lincoln and, you know, search through articles and posts, and they're all free. Uh, so you can enjoy uh, any of the material there. That's great. I, uh, I appreciate it. Um, we're already running. I can't believe this hour has gone by as fast as it has, to be quite honest with you. It went quicker than I expected. I, uh, I do want to ask you one last question. If you were to summarize your favorite um, teaching from Buddha in a few sentences, which one would that be and why, based on your experience with this project? Well, I think that the basic... Uh, teaching of the Buddha is that life itself is a gift and that life itself beyond just looking at life as a phys the physical embodiment of life but that life is also the universe itself is alive that everything is alive that we are alive different kinds of life that life is so diverse that uh, it includes everything that ex exists in what the Buddha calls the world of form, formlessness, and desire. So uh, life itself is the most precious, and, and in it there is a treasure beyond your wildest dream. So wake up. I love that. <laughs> I really do. I deeply appreciate you coming on this evening and having a special episode with us. And uh, I look forward to reading the Buddha from Babylon in greater detail. If you, when you do finish your non, your uh, science fiction work, please let us know because I'd love to have you back on the show to discuss that as well. Okay, I'll be happy to. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, 
It was a, and honored by your invitation. Uh, it was it was a it was a treat. It really was. I, I I just I really like everything that you shared today. It gave us some great insight on this very fascinating subject matter. Well, I'm happy to do that. Thank you. <laughs> Have a, have a great night, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. I just want to thank everyone for tuning into this special episode with uh, special guest Harvey Kraft, author of The Buddha from Babylon. I, uh, I deeply appreciate Harvey sharing this information with us. I, feel, I always love the idea of being able to utilize various perspectives on something that gives some insight on something that's very unique and precious, and that's why I feel like we've accomplished this evening. We are going to be back again on Thursday night at 8 p.m. And uh, if you have any questions about our show, always please do not hesitate to contact us. Um, you can reach us directly at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. Thank you so much. First, we have an ad for Royal Susie, who has inspired many with her boho decor and household furnishing. Are you looking for that perfect gift to express your appreciation for your loved one or bestie? Well, look no further. Royal Susie offers one-of-a-kind designs with genuine high-quality crystals, stones, and the most precious of metals that are guaranteed to satisfy the urges of your inner king or queen. Each piece is handcrafted with love and is sure to inspire and captivate all. Indulge yourself by visiting Royal Susie's website at www.royalsusie.com for splendid items like agate bookends, impressively crystal-studded bottle stoppers, and beautifully handcrafted nightlights that will charm every room in your home. Royal Susie's featured collections will truly delight your guests and always make them feel welcome. Any questions? Contact Royal Susie directly by email at royalsusiedesigns at yahoo.com. Thank you very much. As I, uh, before I close, I just want to let everyone know that we will have Ace and Knight, host of the Psychic Coffee Shop, your spiritual cup of Joe, uh, a fellow podcaster on our show, and a master psychic for 22 years and certified clairvoyance. Feel free to join us. I'm sure it'll be very uh, intriguing for all. And uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook. And don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind. Embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. 
I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Yes.